Yeah, so familiar strains of Ennio Morricone tell us that it is again time to do the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we're happy to note at the onset that it was a good week last week for vegans at Burger King. Yes, it turns out that Burger King, known for meaty excesses like its 1,150-calorie Bacon King sandwich, is in fact now selling us a plant-based burger. Yes, the chain plans to use patties from the Redwood City-based Impossible Foods. The Impossible Burger is evidently designed to mimic meat using the company's so-called magic ingredient, heme produced by genetically modified yeast. Now, uh, we're certain that Burger King's not the first one at the banquet table on this one. There's a, uh, a chain located in the Bay Area that's been serving up such burgers for quite a while. I have, I have not yet tried one, but I believe Mr. McMillan has. They are quite tasty. Quite tasty. There you have it. I think this would actually qualify as vegan, would it not? Not just vegetarian? I, I certainly would think so. So maybe, maybe in the future, and you're... Driving across the United States, so this, uh, this this test market will be expanded, and you'll be able to get a heme burger just in all sorts of locations. Probably a good thing. Of course, it does have to pass muster with the public. I know back when I was eating a lot of burgers back in my high school days, the McDonald's Corporation was testing out a new product in, in my hometown. It was called the Quarter Pounder. We ate quite a few of them. It, it caught on. By the way, Radio Parallax does not mean this to be an endorsement of any hamburger chain. And it should be noted that the aforementioned McDonald's Corporation uh, does not offer any meat-free burgers in the U.S., but according to the piece in the East Bay Times, has recently introduced a chicken-free vegan nugget in Norway. Yes, and (laughs) like you, we await the outcome of that test. And moving right along, we would note that it was a bad week last week for detours. After a British Airways flight bound from London to Dusseldorf instead landed in Edinburgh, capital of Scotland. (laughs) Reportedly, one passenger said the pilot said he had no idea how it happened. The airline blamed an incorrectly filed flight plan. Now, I got to tell you, as a pilot myself, I remain highly skeptical of this explanation Filing a flight plan incorrectly does not mean you're going to wind up in the wrong airport. Just saying. Personally, I have no doubt that it has something to do with the software in the aircraft. Not the poor pilot. And it was surely an ugly week for Donald Trump's border fence last week with the news that razor wire laid by U.S. troops, U.S. troops along the southern border, is being stolen. The wire, laid as part of Trump's campaign to ward off asylum seekers, is being stolen by thieves who are selling it for about $2 to homeowners in Tijuana who are using it to add security to their homes. One customer said her wire supplier was blonde, blue-eyed, and did not speak very good Spanish. And finally, we have an item that's probably a good week for most of us, although probably a bad week for mass murderers. Chief Justice John Roberts rejected an emergency request for the Supreme Court to stay President Trump's ban on bump stock gun attachments, allowing the executive order to take effect. Gun rights activists sought to delay the ban, which requires that bump stocks be destroyed or turned over to authorities unless it's litigated in lower courts. 
These devices gained notoriety in 2017 after police found more than a dozen weapons with bump stocks in the hotel room of the gunman who killed 58 people on the Las Vegas Strip. And you know, I'd, I'd missed the fact that uh, the president had issued a ban on bump stocks, but uh, we do want to give him an attaboy for it. All right, and by way of follow-up, we have a story here from March 20th of last month that piques my interest. Many, many years ago on this program, we expressed the possibility that some of the campaign managers the Democrats picked uh, in, in recent elections, of course, recent, and we talked about the first time, included the 1988 election, wherein uh, Susan Estridge ran Michael Dukakis's campaign into the ground. And I guess the 2000 election wasn't all that recent, but Al Gore's campaign manager, Donna Brazil, ran such a bad campaign that we openly speculated on this program that maybe she and Ms. Estridge were in the pay of Rupert Murdoch, for all we know. Well, Donna Brazil is now explaining why it is she's gone to work for Fox News. I guess you can file this one under conspiracy theory that may or may not have merit. But uh, Donna Brazil was a regular commentator working on CNN up until 2016 when she resigned. And I don't know, I just have to express some uh, puzzlement at the fact that she said that she was excited to join the honest and passionate debate at Fox News about our future. Just doesn't seem right to me. And more in the way of follow-up, there's additional proof that vaccines don't cause autism, which is going to have zero effect on the opinions of the people who are convinced that it does. But if you do care about evidence-based decision-making, you might like to know that a decade-long study involving more than 650,000 children has once again confirmed what scientists have been saying for years. The measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine doesn't increase a child's risk of autism. The myth linking the MMR shot with autism has refused to die, even though the small and flawed 1998 study on which it was based has been widely and comprehensively debunked. And in new healthcare news, we have the following. Apparently, watching television for more than three and a half hours a day might exacerbate memory loss in older people. At least that's what a new study found. Researchers in England carried out memory and fluency tests on 3,600 adults age 50 and over, first in 2008 2009, and again in 2014 15, and also asked about participants' TV habits. Those who sat in front of the small screen for more than three and a half hours a day experienced an 8 to 10% decrease on average of verbal memory. Those who watched less than that had a 4 to 5% decline. This is not, these are not powerful numbers, but it does make you wonder. And finally, we have what certainly appears to be a good news story for today in the way of international health. Article in The Economist notes that um, in most countries suffering civil wars, earthquakes, or typhoons, a single mental hospital and a handful of psychiatrists for a population of millions is pretty typical. For foreign medics who fly in after disaster, mending crushed limbs and staunching bleeding wounds is straightforward. Alleviating mental distress is trickier, not the least because medics seldom speak the local language. As disaster relief experts wondered how quickly to train local people to provide mental health care, they realized that for the most part, non-specialists might be able to do the job. They quoted Julian Eaton of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, a veteran in disaster care, as saying, we used to assume that people need professional counseling. But it turned out this was not so. 
rates of mental health problems usually doubled after a calamity, but few people needed a psychiatrist. Most got better with simple, appropriate help that anyone could provide, known as psychological first aid. It is something that can be taught in a matter of hours. The Economist reports that this training is now standard fare in the first days after a disaster. Teachers, pastors, barbers, taxi drivers are taught to notice people in distress, to provide the right kinds of emotional support, and to avoid common mistakes such as pressing sufferers to recount stressful events. The magazine notes that problems of daily life take a toll on mental health in rich countries too, obviously. A study in 2015 found that primary care doctors in Britain spend one-fifth of their consultation time on issues that are not medical, such as distress stemming from financial difficulties or loneliness. In response, Britain's National Health Service has been expanding the use of social prescribing, whereby family doctors refer patients to organizations that provide housing, welfare, and debt advice or social connections through activities such as dance classes or gardening groups. The article notes that disaster relief has taught that non-specialists can be trained to treat mild to moderate depression and anxiety, which affect 10 to 15% of people in a given year. They note that in Western countries, a psychotherapist qualification usually takes several years of training on top of a university degree. Dixon Chibanda, a psychiatrist in Zimbabwe, showed that lay people can be trained in a couple of weeks to do some parts of the job. One hopes so, because apparently uh, in the whole country of Zimbabwe, they have five psychiatrists for 13 million people. Anyway, I'm very, cur- anyway, I'm very encouraged by this idea of using non-specialists. Makes a lot of sense to me. We human beings tend to rely upon our eyes for most of the information that comes into our little brains. Well, thankfully, also our ears. But compared to other species out there, we homo sapiens don't rely so much on our noses. We've reported on this program in the past about how dogs, which have infinitely superior senses of smell to humans, uh, have been employed doing things like detecting cancers. Certain chemical markers that would turn up in urine, for example, are something that Fido, at least some Fidos, can smell. This opens the door to some exciting diagnostic possibilities. An article in the March 9th issue of New Scientist points out that there are some people with exceptional abilities in this area that, uh, that also raise some curious possibilities. The article notes that when Joy Milne's husband Les started giving off a strange musky scent, she was not too happy about it. She'd always had a very keen sense of smell, and this was unmissable. It was almost like a slap in the face, she said. I didn't like it. Lee was adamant he was looking after himself properly, and when no one else picked up on the smell, Joy let it, the matter drop. But 12 years later, when Les was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, she realized the magnitude of what she had noticed. Joy Milne from Perth, UK, is a super smeller with an almost supernatural ability to sense odors that most people don't perceive. Milne has to avoid the supermarket aisles with soaps and makeup because, for her, it is just too overpowering. Milne worked for years as a nurse, attuned her sense of smell to different medical conditions. The article notes that Milne's now retired after decades of vivid olfaction, and her incredible nose is helping find new ways to diagnose diseases. This unusual career path had its origins in 1994, when husband Les got diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, although he was only age 45. When the couple went to a support group for people with Parkinson's, Joy noticed something strange. Les wasn't the only one with that greasy smell. 
Everyone else with Parkinson seemed to have it too. Under the pretext of handing out cups of tea, Joy took a few good sniffs to confirm her suspicions and became convinced that the condition had a unique smell. The one that she had noticed on less more than a decade earlier. I was smelling Parkinson's in the whole room, she said. Well, some researchers decided to test Joy's ability to do this. She was given identical t-shirts to smell and asked to determine which had been worn by people with Parkinson's, and she passed with flying colors, with one exception, where she identified one of the people who hadn't been diagnosed with the disease yet. Eight months later, that person that Joy had misidentified revealed that, well, he had since been diagnosed with Parkinson's. Very interesting stuff. Joy has visited Tanzania, where there's a parallel project there to train African giant pouched rats to detect tuberculosis, which they can evidently do by smell. All right, dang, that's that's two good news items uh, from the world of, uh, of medicine. Sorry, I've got to mess up the trend here. Although the item I have does not has nothing to do with medicine, it has to do with space junk. Apparently at noon, last March 27th, Narendra Modi, India's Prime Minister, appeared on television to deliver a triumphal message to the nation. An Indian missile, he said, had hurtled 300 kilometers into space and blown up a satellite, putting India in a small club of countries that had developed and tested anti-satellite weapons. India stands tall as a space power, he exulted. Well, maybe not standing as tall as Narendra Modi would like. This is the first avowed ASAT test since China blew up one of its own satellites back in 2007, provoking international condemnation. The debris from that explosion generated a quarter, a quarter of all cataloged objects in low Earth orbit. This puts other countries' satellites at risk. Indian officials tried to point out that this, that the test they did was in a far lower orbit, so debris was more likely to fall toward the Earth and bur- burn up harmlessly. Bryden Whedon of the Secure World Foundation and NGO agreed, but warned that some pieces will surely be thrown into higher orbits, as occurred after America destroyed a wayward satellite at about the same altitude back in 2008. This is really, really stupid. New Scientist Magazine's current edition has an article titled Waste of Space, explaining how the Earth's orbit is crammed with junk. There are actually 20,000 identifiable objects in orbit around planet Earth. Tens of millions of such items that are too small to track from flecks of paint to bits of old rockets. Left unchecked, this situation could jeopardize the future of space travel with humans trapped in a cage of their own devising. Elon Musk's SpaceX has recently been given the go-ahead to put 12,000, yes, 12,000 satellites into orbit to provide the world with cheap internet. Great. You know, a rifle bullet might travel at, you know, 2,000 feet per second. A, a paint chip orbiting the Earth is traveling at like 25,000 feet per second, something like that. And, of course, the energy in an object is mass times the velocity squared, meaning that, you know, you might take out the International Space Station with a nut, certainly a bolt. This has a lot of people worried. Luisa Innocente, who's head of the European Space Agency's Clean Space Program, says the situation is critical. If we keep throwing junk into outer space, whole orbits could be rendered unusable for satellites. The nightmare scenario is the onset of the Kessler effect, in which debris from one collision cascades into further impacts, creating a self-sustaining effect that endangers satellites and threatens the future of space flight. 
And yes, spokespeople for NASA were expressing concern that this Indian anti-satellite test could directly threat the International Space Station. I don't think NASA was all that reassured by what uh, G. Satish Reddy, the chief of India's Defense Research and Development Organization, said, said about all this. He said, that's why we did it at a lower altitude. It will vanish in no time. NASA says that the, the risk of the ISS colliding with debris had decreased 44% in the 10 days after the missile test. And uh, no, Ms. Mill, we, we cannot call upon Scotty to put up the deflector shields in the future. And apparently a meteor caused a massive explosion over the Earth last year, but nobody noticed it up, up till now. It is reportedly the second largest recorded blast in this past century, now 19 years old, after the meteor that exploded over Chelyabinsk in 2013. Evidently, researchers in Canada spotted the meteor in measurements picked up by at least 16 monitoring stations globally. The meteor was 10 meters across and had a mass of 140,000 tons and impacted with an energy of 173 kilotons of TNT. That's one-sixth of a megaton, folks. It's certainly 10 times at least uh, the energy of the atomic bomb that flattened Hiroshima back in 1945. The blast was detected by infrasound stations worldwide, which pick up low-frequency acoustic waves inaudible to humans. These stations were set up during the Cold War, initially to detect nuclear explosions. This is the third-largest blast in modern times after Chelyabinsk and that massive explosion that occurred in Siberia back in 1908, known as the Tunguska event. Apparently, the Bering Sea explosion got also picked up by U.S. Uh, government monitors that detect fireballs. Their sensors spotted electromagnetic radiation in the form of infrared and visible light. Somebody went back and looked at a uh, photo taken by a weather satellite, and they did uh, detect its smoke trail on, on that photo. And apparently, scientists are getting pretty good at monitoring uh, meteors smacking into planet Earth. Uh, there's arrays of cameras that are set up here on Earth to do just that. The oldest of these is the European Fireball Network, which dates back to 1951. They now use digital cameras to take back-to-back -back photographs with 35-second exposures from dawn to dusk. Fisheye lenses allow a single exposure to cover the whole sky immediately above each camera. If more than one camera sees the same fireball, which is usually the case, the meteor's course can be triangulated with a precision of about 10 meters. Plotting the path backwards reveals the rock's orbit before it slammed into the Earth's atmosphere. Projecting it forward suggests a potential landing site. These guys are getting pretty good at this. They uh, take into account how wind affects the trajectory during the 20 kilometers or so of dark flight after the fireball has burned out. A decade ago, half of the meteorites found as a result of the EFN's data were within 500 meters of the predicted spot. That figure has now shrunk to 100 meters. Although they note that the network's co-coordinator usually keeps the impact zone secret until his team or trusted helpers can search for it. Meteorites have commercial as well as scientific value, and giving the game away too early risks losing fines to professional collectors. Anyway, I hope this does bring more meteorites uh, onto the market, because, you know, I wouldn't mind buying one. Well, I guess I'm implying that I don't have one, but I actually have several. I, I would like more. Something else I've also liked to collect over the years are tektites, which are glassy black bits of rock that uh, generally appear as though they've been hurtled through the Earth's atmosphere at a high rate of speed because, well, they have been. 
Tektite's result for meteor impacts, big ones here on planet Earth that splash up enough uh, hot rock to um, form glass when it quickly cools in the atmosphere. The vast majority of tektites are, are of terrestrial origin, but I suppose, you know, a certain percentage of them must have some, have some meteoritic material embedded in them, melted. Which brings us to a story which sadly I do not have in front of me at the moment, but we'll talk about it at greater length in the future. Uh, about a, a fossil find up in, I believe, North Dakota. It seems to be clearly the result of the Chicxulub crater that, not, that wiped out the dinosaurs at the, um, the KT boundary. The fossils they found were all jumbled up, a big mess, indicating that stuff came crashing down upon them. What's most amazing is that they found fish fossils that evidently had little bits of tektite embedded in their gills. Evidently, lots and lots of bits of hot rock came splashing down on uh, North Dakota from the impact in Yucatan. Well, it's North Dakota now and Yucatan now, but there was a huge sea between uh, the peninsula in Mexico and what is now North Dakota at that time. Not that you needed that detail. But yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea that little bits of glass came landing in whatever pond or seashore this was in, and the, the fish were quickly exterminated by, you know sucking them into their body. We'll talk about this at greater length in the future. I'm sure there are going to be more uh, follow-up studies on this because, wow, what a thing to have stumbled upon. It's like, it's like King Tut's tomb. And in other news related to space rocks, and how's that for a segue, we have an item from, again, from New Scientist about how uh, space rocks are revealing surprises galore. In this case, it's referring to three bodies out orbiting the sun which were all recently visited by spacecraft. First, the MU-69 object, Ultima Thule, visited by NASA's New Horizons uh, on January 1st. Close look at the photograph of what it's a, it's a twin-lobed object indicates to scientists that it was originally two objects that merged as they smacked into each other at about two or three meters per second. A team member who looked into this <laughs> said that if you take a brisk walk into a wall, you'll find out what that sort of collision is like. Meanwhile, at the asteroid Bennu, which NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft is orbiting with the hope of landing on it, getting some pieces of it, and bringing it back to Earth, they have noticed, to their surprise, that the surface is popping off rocks like popcorn. OSIRIS-REx spotted Bennu spewing out dust and rocks on at least 11 occasions over a several-week period. This was quite surprising to scientists. They are studying Bennu because it's one of the near-Earth asteroids, one of the ones that poses a collision uh, risk to the planet, you know, could do another dinosaur number on us. Although, fortunately, this one's apparently smaller than the one that took out uh, Tyrannosaurus rex. But at any rate, they've observed lumps of rock being ejected from the surface. They range from a few centimeters to tens of centimeters in size. And at least four appear to have ended up in an orbit around Bennu, forming what are essentially miniature moons around the asteroid. It's believed that this behavior on Bennu is probably related to uh, water or hydrated minerals that are, that are a part of this little asteroid. Heat from the sun could be turning the ice into gas and blowing the rocks away, making it sort of a comet-like asteroid. There is a continual gradation, I think, between uh, comets and asteroids, which uh, we have no time to discuss, and probably, frankly, shouldn't discuss. But finally, Japan's Hayabusa 2 spacecraft has sent back its first data on the near-Earth asteroid Ryugu. 
it appears to have virtually no water at all, which is surprising scientists. And I do believe that Hayabusa 2 is set to bring back uh, pieces of its asteroid, just as its predecessor Hayabusa did some years back. And, uh, you know, don't ask what it would cost to get a chunk of one of those asteroids. If you have to ask, you, you can't afford it. All right, and a final sad note to close today's program. I note with some chagrin that although I counsel you, dear listener, to make sure that if you were going to purchase a copy of the Old Farmer's Almanac, something that I like to make a practice of doing every year because it's so full of cool stuff, you make sure you get the Western Edition. After months of searching for a Western Edition in the usual stores in which I, I find them, I went online to discover to my horror that they've now discontinued regional editions of the Old Farmer's Almanac. Now, I confess, the fact that you don't have access anymore through the Old Farmer's Almanac to the tides in San Francisco Bay is not that big a deal. Who knows? Maybe you'll visit Boston one of these days, and it'll be useful again. Now, if you're the kind of person who really depends on checking your tide log, (laughs) a person such as myself, (laughs) you should know that I do highly recommend the tide logs that are put out uh, by the Pacific Publishers, LLC. My dad bought copies of them for decades, and for the past couple of decades, I've continued that tradition. But as I hold in my hand at the moment, the Old Farmer's Almanac from 2019, I know with one minute left, I can pull one or two items out of it that'll be amusing. All right, here we go. Did you know that many flowers from your garden are edible? Well, they are. And if you feel like uh, some mild apple flavor at at mealtime, you can go out and Pick from your apple tree some apple blossoms in late spring. You just sprinkle a few in your Waldorf salad. And reportedly, you can steep petals in cream to pour on apple pie, crepes, or pastries. No doubt some of you have calendula in your garden. It is noted that the ancient Romans used to use the flowers as an inexpensive substitute for saffron. And if you've got carnations in your garden, you can apparently use them for a a clove-like flavor. Remove the bitter white base from the petals and add them to cake mixes, candies, and teas. And finally, the almanac describes roses as being famously edible flowers. The article does not mention daisies, so we assume that you should not eat the daisies. Please. Please, please don't eat the daisies. Don't eat the daisies. Please, please. I'm so romantic. But I'm getting frantic, wondering what you're gonna do. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We think that was a good move on your part, and we hope to see you again next week. If you love me, if you love me, love me a lot. You'll prove it by letting the daisies grow. It showers while you're eating flowers. The hours are wasted away. Please don't eat the daisies today.